This podcast is brought to you by The Province. listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Here are your hosts, Paul Chapman and E. Spencer Kite. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Keyboard Kimura podcast here on Province Sports Radio. Taping this on a Sunday morning, a beautiful fall Sunday morning, already September, here in Abbotsford and everywhere for that matter. <laughs> I'm your host, E. Spencer Kite, joined by my Punch Drunk Predictions Partner in crime, Patrick Shivik-Linsky, who is on recap duty for the UFC Hamburg-Germany card on Saturday morning. So it made sense to just roll into an early morning recap for an early morning fight card. Patty, how are you doing this fine Sunday morning? Pretty good. Uh, we might be talking about the best card of the year here, Spencer. No, <laughs> just kidding. But uh, it was a it was a good and interesting card overall. It was fun recapping it. And uh, definitely some some noteworthy takeaways that we'll run down today. <laughs> I think there are going to be some people that object to your calling it a good and fun and noteworthy card. Uh, lots of lots of social media reaction during the event, questioning whether it was first the worst prelims of the year and maybe of all time, and then the worst card of the year and maybe of all time. Um, I don't think it's worst card of all time. There are some Canadian events that people would like to bring up that, that certainly fit that bill. Um, there was a pay-per-view in Indianapolis, I recall, headlined by Frank Mir and Mirko Krokop that uh, probably still takes the, takes the cake there, but we will jump into it. Um, the main event, veterans, Andre Arlovsky, Josh Barnett. Barnett comes out and gets the victory in the third round with a short choke. Um, it started off the opening 30 seconds, white hot, both guys landing big shots. Both guys had to take a knee at one point, uh, <laughs> to recover and get back. And then Arlovsky kind of starts to fade. Barnett does the Josh Barnett thing. Josh Barnett has just become that guy that he's that to me, I'm a, I'm a pickup basketball head. So he's that old man that, that is at your run and you think this is nothing, you know, a couple times up and down the court and an old fella's going to be exhausted. But then he gets down in the post and he still out muscles you and he's still got those Kevin McHale spin moves and he's and he's still there for the whole game. He's just able to keep going. That's what he did against Andre Arlovsky, wore him down, got it to the ground and finished him off in, in the fashion that I sort of thought if this is how Josh Barnett is going to win, this is how he's going to win. The question because we like to just keep everything looking forward here on the show, is what do you do next with these guys? Both veterans, both in their late 30s. Josh Barnett kind of fights twice a year over the last three years. Where does he go from here? Is is he still a viable... I mean, he talked about a title shot being potentially there for him in the not-too-distant future. Mm-hmm. What do you see next? We'll start with Josh Barnett, and then we'll get to Andre Arlovsky after this. Yeah, I think that if it were any other division besides heavyweight, and he said, I want the title shot at 38 years of age, we'd call him probably a nutcase. 
Um, the thing is, listen, 45 year old Dan Henderson is fighting for a title in a month, like exactly one month from today. I should say, yeah, I should say the, the, those guys in kind of the heavier weight classes, you see it a lot in the, in the heavyweight division, these guys beyond 35 that are, you know, still viable stars in that division. And I think the case with Josh Barnett is here's another guy who's a seasoned veteran guy who's exchanged wins and losses in his last, you know, four fights, kind of had one loss, one win, one loss, one win. And, um, you know, coming off of a fight against Andre Arlovsky, you know, winning that fight as, you know, Im- impressive as it was. It, it was a it was a short choke that, that looked pretty imp- impressive. He got the quick tap from Andre. But does it really do anything to move him up the rankings or anything to really uh, make us want to see him in a title shot necessarily? I don't think so. Um, but then again, you look at the options in that sort of upper echelon of the heavyweight division and the, uh, you know, the options are kind of thin. So if you can build Josh Barnett, maybe a, a win or two more, who knows, man? He, he very well could be fighting for a title in 2017. That's the crazy thing about this division is you just never know. Um, realistically, do I think he's going to fight for a title shot in the near future? Probably not. I think he'll continue, you know, headlining these potentially, you know, international cards against other, you know, bigger name heavyweight veterans, um, I think that's kind of maybe where his lane suits, you know, is best suited to to kind of fight those headlining fights that, you know, you can put his name against another name like you did against Arlovsky and just have him kind of sit around that top, just outside of that top five. You know, if, I mean, if he can put together some, some impressive wins, we could be talking about a whole different thing. I mean, Ben Rothwell was right there at one point. Uh, a lot of these guys, you seem to you know you seem to count them out at one point in time, and they just surprise you and sneak up with a bunch of wins. You know, we were talking about Alistair Overeem being washed up at one point in the heavyweight division. He's fighting for a title in a week. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. Going to be interesting for the UFC, dependent on which direction they take with Josh Barnett, and and truthfully. Which direction Josh Barnett wants to go? We hear him talking about a title fight. Obviously, that's the path he would like to take. I think the potential opponent there is Fabricio Verdum if he gets through Travis Brown this coming weekend in Cleveland at UFC 203. I know Verdum is going to say, oh, well, if I beat Travis Brown, I should be next for a title shot. But Cain Velasquez is kind of sitting there. I think his performance against Travis Brown is probably going to end up being more impressive than whatever Verdum turns in. Maybe I'm proven wrong this weekend, but we'll see. And I think Cain Velasquez sits as as a more interesting opponent for whoever wins that heavyweight title fight on Saturday's pay-per-view. So that option is there for Josh Barnett. I think then you can make the winner of that go forward into a title fight. I think that's a heavyweight potential main event for Fox or kind of a a second fight on a pay-per-view, a co-main event on a pay-per-view with a big headliner, or if you want to stack it on one of these massive cards that are going to be coming up because New York, Toronto, and the end of the year show in Las Vegas are all going to be very big cards, I would assume. I think that's an avenue you can take with them. The other one is if you want to use Josh Barnett as sort of the, the veteran presence to help showcase some of these 
I don't want to say younger talents because they're all older than than most divisions, but some of these still up and coming, some of these guys that have a little bit more upside. So maybe the winner of the Stefan Struve Ruslan Magomedov fight that's set for UFC 202, or the winner of the Derek Lewis Marchin Tibura fight that's coming up in the Philippines later this year. Those are guys that sort of need that Josh Barnett rub that could use the benefit of headlining alongside Josh Barnett on one of these international shows, as you mentioned, or on one of these pay-per-views or Fox shows where people say, oh, Josh Barnett, I know that guy. I'm a tune-in. And then you see Derek Lewis potentially run through him. Additionally, if Josh Barnett goes out and beats one of those young kind of younger emergent guys in the heavyweight division then that keeps him moving forward and I think those are the keys I just don't want to see it end up being Josh Barnett continues in this fighting veterans role because that's stagnant to me that doesn't move anything forward and if if that's all you're going to do with these guys and continue to sort of recycle them why are these I mean there's utility in it as we saw last yesterday morning it's it's a headlining event it's a headlining fight for for a new market but that gets stale real quick and so that to me leads into Andre Arlovsky I have two question marks here next to his name as one is an opponent maybe Roy Nelson if if big country gets through big foot in a, in about a month's time in Brazil and the other is done is Andre Arlovsky like is this just Andre Arlovsky's kind of shot and and we need to move on. Well, yeah, I mean this is this is the interesting part about uh the whole thing and and you know, coming off three losses where he's, you know, been finished in each of those fights, you do start to question, you know, whether he still has that sort of, you know, desire to fight. He talked about it in the post-fight press conference a little bit that he still had that fire, you know, to fight. I I don't know if I believe him necessarily. Um, you know, every fighter that has, you know, that pride with them, they're going to say that. Um, but at 37 years of age and the style that Andre Arlovsky fights, it's it's a tough, you know, sell to me to say, you know, he's going to have another run or he's going to, you know, be a successful guy in that heavyweight division moving forward. Because as these guys continue to evolve and get better, I feel like Andre Arlovsky, certainly, you know, his his striking has always been very, you know, um, sharp and, and crisp. And I think it's gotten, you know, uh, slightly better over time. But he hasn't really introduced any new arsenals in his game for a long time because he hasn't needed to. And, you know, he's been knocking guys out. When he came back to the UFC at 174, you know, a fight that we were both there for, he, you know, it was a, it, it was a pretty sloppy-looking fight against Brendan Shaw. But then he went on that run where he, finished Antonio Bigfoot Silva and Travis Brown in that, you know, friggin' slobber knocker. Um, so we thought, okay, well, maybe, you know, this guy can actually go for the title. But then I think you see now we're, we're hitting a moment where he's kind of gotten into that upper, upper echelon of the heavyweight division with guys like Stipe Miocic, Alistair Overeem, and he can't, you know, hang with those guys, I don't think, anymore at this age. You know, and what we're seeing is kind of, it's funny because he's had a kind of run of losses like this where he's been finished quite a bit before, back in 2009 um, to 2011 where he was, you know, in Affliction and then strike force. He was getting finished by Fedor and Brett Rogers and then Sergey Kartanov. 
Um, so this has happened before, but you got to think how many times can it happen in his career before it's time to call it quits. And I think that's where we're at with Andre Arlovsky is he's got a bit of, you know, soul searching to do and figure out what's best for him moving forward. Yeah. To me, you mentioned that run where he gets the win over Brendan Chubb and then gets those two first round finishes over Bigfoot and Travis Brown. That to me was a missed opportunity for the UFC. There was all kinds of buzz and just renewed energy around Andre Arlovsky coming off that Travis Brown fight, which was just unbelievable to be there and sit and see that play out from cage side. That was the point to me where, regardless of everything else that was going on in the division, you hotshot Andre Arlovsky into a title fight. Fabricio Verdum had the belt at the time. It, it would have made sense from a veteran versus veteran kind of standpoint. Instead, they go different routes. He ends up fighting Stipe Miocic. It, it leads to where we are now. And for me, you mentioned Andrei Arlovsky hasn't really evolved over these last few years. I think there's also been a little bit of a regression in terms of his cardio, in terms of his ab ability to absorb punishment. And some of that is just age. You get up in age. All of this stuff becomes harder. Taking punches becomes harder. Your chin doesn't hold up and he's a guy that you know his chin didn't always hold up even when he was a younger gentleman so to still be in there I mean there are going to be I think heavyweights are those guys that could stick around and fight till they had to be wheeled out of the cage a la Ken Shamrock probably um, in that vein where if you want to keep fighting and you got a name, there's probably going to be room for you because the UFC isn't going to want to let go of these guys that then go to Bellator and become a name for them for a couple of fights. I just don't know what the options are. And that's why I said big country as kind of a question mark. I mean, Ben Rothwell, maybe as another question mark guy down the road. Um, but it just becomes one of those situations where not only are you running out of opponents, but like you also don't want to put Andre Arlovsky or even Josh Barnett for that matter in there with some of these emergent guys that have a chance to maybe do some things going forward because of the veteran beats them. We've already seen the veteran against everyone that's ahead of them in the division. We know where that ceiling rests. So it's going to be very interesting to see both what Andre Arlovsky decides to do personally and what the UFC decides to do with him going forward. It's the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio. E. Spencer Kite, Patrick Shiviklinski, recapping UFC Hamburg from Saturday morning. Um, the co-main event was a fight that I know both of us were probably more interested in than the main event. The return of Alexander Gustafson took on and defeated Jan Blahovitz in a... I want to say grindy, not really showcasey, didn't really look great, but at the end of the day, he got the win kind of performance. What were your takeaways for, for Gus's effort? And do you think everybody that probably includes myself that is being super critical of this performance needs to just push back for a minute and, and look at the fact that, all right, he got a win. He's been off for almost a year. He did what he needed to do. Well, I, yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. Uh, I think for Gus, you know, coming into this fight, it was all about getting the win. Um, this is a guy who, in since 2013, he's only had one win. He's had three losses. Yes, albeit 
John Jones, <laughs> Daniel Cormier fights Anthony Johnson. However, the record says one in three since 2013. So I think for Gus, it was just important and, and just crucial for him to get back in there and get that winning feeling, honestly. Um, and whatever that meant doing, you know, against Jan Blakovich, he had to do. And as we saw early on in that fight, Blakovich was surprising him with his striking. And I, I don't think that, you know, Gus expected, you know, uh, Jan to come out so strong and, and really piece him up with some nice combos there early on in that fight. So he had to make the necessary adjustments. This is what great fighters do. They make adjustments. They see what's going on in the fight, and they say, okay, well, if it's not working here, and if I have an opportunity to get knocked out, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to take it to the ground, and I'm going to dominate from top position, which is what he did. So I think a lot is being made of, of Gustafson's, you know, sort of performance uh, not being, you know, amazing or anything. Mostly that's due to the fact that we've seen him in such amazing performances against John Jones and against Daniel Cormier. We've seen him in those stand-up wars where, you know, he, he's got that great movement and moving side to side. I mean, the Jones fight, that, that was incredible, obviously. But as great fighters do, you have to really adjust the situations. And with Blakovich, he obviously... You know, the, the strikes that he was throwing were connecting. And early on, you saw that, that Gus was having a little bit of blood above his eye. I think that, you know, he just saw that situation and said, listen, I need to dig deep and get this win. I can't play around with this guy on the feet. If he's going to be throwing these dangerous shots, I need to take it to the ground, do what I got to do to get this win. And that's exactly what he did. So I have no, you know... um kind of bad things to say about the performance in terms of what Gus did to get the win. Yes, obviously, um, you know, his his striking, there's some maybe questions around that, that he wasn't able to, you know, uh, kind of stand in there with a guy like Blakovich. But at the same time, uh, as, I, as I said before, this is what great fighters do. They make adjustments and they get fights won. See, but where you say... Yeah, he wasn't able to stand in there. And you were the dude on Thursday or Wednesday night or Thursday when we taped our preview of this event <laughs> that essentially started it with, I'm Polish, I support my Polish brother Jan Blakowicz, but he's going to get trucked. Listen. <laughs> and so for Alex Gustafson to go out and struggle with him early and have to turn this into a grind, and it wasn't even as if he took it to the ground and was just to use his nickname, mauling him on the ground. It was a tactical victory. Yes, he was landing some elbows and he was landing some ground and pound and the referee let him stay there and, and continue to work because he is active, but it wasn't even one of those fights. It wasn't even like Ashley Evans-Smith, who we will get to momentarily in her win over Ver Vanessa Veronica Mercado. Um, it was just a grind-out victory. And so for me, the question marks that pop up and the reason that I'm curious about this fight and we'll go back and watch it and would love to talk to Alex in a week's time once he's settled in post fight is because it felt like a it felt like a bout where he fought down to the level of his competition and he and I spoke before it and when I asked him what it is about those championship fights that draw the best out of him even though he's come up short the first thing he said was it's your opponent and it's that moment and so now I start to wonder if this is a guy that just fights to the level of his competition, 
which is fine because you get those championship fights and it brings out the best of them. But there's going to come a point where he fights down to the level of a guy like Jan Blachowicz, who we both agree is a top 15 light heavyweight, probably falls somewhere in that 8 through 15 range. One of these days, Alex Gustafson is going to get in there with somebody in that range and not be able to take them down and grind them out like this, and it's going to cost him. I will give him the benefit of the doubt for one fight of, look, it was almost a year since he fought last. Last year was a miserable year for him. This was a tougher fight than he expected. He didn't, you know, the game plan that he prepped for when they came out, that isn't what he saw and he had to adjust. Cool. This next fight for him is crucial, which leads me into what we like to do on these kind of (laughs) post-fight review shows. Where do you go next with Alex Gustafson? Because this is a very thin division. Um, it's very top heavy. There's five or six guys at the top and then everybody else. Do you run him right back into a marquee matchup? Do you put him in sort of just a spot below that? Or do you bring him along slowly and let him build up a little bit of that confidence, get one or two victories more under his belt before reinserting him into the championship picture? Joe Silva is leaving. Consider this your audition for his job. Well, you know, um, I think that it, it's it's an interesting spot for Gustafson because, as we said, you know, coming off that fight, uh, there, there are those options for him. But I think that, you know, from what I saw from Gustafson, at least in, in my perspective, you know, yes, I, I was the guy who said Blakovich is going to get run over. Um, you Trucks, know, I, just you had him like not even surviving. <laughs> I, you know, I had the guy, I, I got a, you know, my hats off to, to Jan. He's a, he's a great guy. I've talked to him before and certainly put up a great performance, um, you know, for what he had. But I think that for, for Gus, it doesn't, I don't think it really does him any favors to give him another, you know, tune up fight. I think it, you know, as you were kind of, you know, talking, um, and talking about, you know, him kind of rising to the, you know, um, kind of his opponent's level. Uh, I think that is true in a lot of ways. And I think that if you give him another one of those fights, it's only going to be a similar kind of situation to the Jan Blachowicz fight. We're not, I don't think, going to get a, another you know crazy finish from, from Gustafsson or a knockout or anything like that. I think it's just going to be a similar kind of fight. So as far as options, I think that depending on what we you know uh, get from John Jones here in the next few months, if he ends up coming back, uh, you know, we talked about this on the podcast with, with Chappie a couple weeks ago in UFC Vancouver. You brought up the idea of having a little light heavyweight tournament. I still like that idea a lot if John Jones indeed can come back and, you know, you do DC Rumble and then you do Gus uh, Jones too. Um, I think that's a that's a great idea. Obviously, if John Jones is ready to come back, if he's not ready to come back, and if there's nobody really kind of left on that, uh, you know, uh, area for, for Gus to fight, I would say a guy like Ryan Bader, who also fought on that card, is a very interesting option. Given the performance he just had against uh, Gus's teammate, Alir Latifi, I think that's a fight Gus would probably uh, be interested in as well. Yeah, and those are the two matchups that I have written down as well. And as you mentioned, we talked about on the podcast with Chappie a couple weeks back doing that DC Rumble rematch as the main event, doing 
Gustafson and Jones 2. Um, underneath it is the co-main. Just makes sense. I like the idea of stacking the two light heavyweight fights. If something happens to somebody, then you shuffle somebody into that that other fight. As you said, it all hinges on what happens with John Jones. He seems to think it's not going to be much, but there will still be some kind of suspension. There will still be both from USADA and potentially from the Nevada Athletic Commission as well. So we'll have to wait and see with that. I do think Bader fits in there nicely in the fact that he got a very good knockout finish over Alir Latifi on the same timeline as Gustafson makes that make a lot of sense. I think Ryan Bader, kind of similar to the Andre Orlovsky missing his shot from earlier in the show, I think Bader kind of got screwed a little bit by getting hustled in there with Anthony Johnson when he was on a good winning streak. Um, lost out on his opportunity to potentially fight for the title. So this becomes a spot where maybe he can work his way back in there in a fight with Gustafson and then moving forward. If they do look to bring him along slowly and sort of rebuild that confidence and, and maybe move forward with a DC Rumble fight and keep Bader in the wings to see either John Jones or just be the next guy up, I think the only option is a guy like Ovin St. Pru, if he gets through Jimmy Manua, um, they're set to fight at UFC 204. But I do believe that, that I think we're on the same path and I think we're on the same train of thought as the UFC. They will keep these core group of elite light heavyweights all kind of meshed together. It sucks in the long term because nobody really builds momentum and nobody new gets a chance to come along. But for right now, it seems like the best course of action is just to keep that group of four or five guys, and you can even throw Glover Teixeira in there as a sixth guy once he's recovered from Anthony Johnson punching his face off in 13 seconds. Um, I think that's probably the way this ends up going. It's the Keyboard Kamara Podcast on Province Sports Radio. Patrick Shivik-Linsky, E. Spencer Kite, talking UFC Hamburg, um, one of the notes that I have down and one of the things that I mentioned to you when we were prepping this that I wanted to talk about, not so much the performance of Ashley Evans-Smith, who goes out and gets a victory over Veronica Makedo in her UFC debut, but more two questions. Does this fight sort of further show the need for the UFC to have a 125-pound division because the size and, and overall physical disparity between these two was evident from Jump Street. And also, is this a case where you look at Veronica Makedo coming in 5-0, and all of those fights taking place since March, where the UFC needs to almost do a better job utilizing Invicta and, and showcasing some of that talent? I know it's on Fight Pass. I cover it regularly when it is on Fight Pass. But she seemed to me in seeing that fight against Ashley Evans-Smith, who, no disrespect, is a kind of middle-of-the-pack bantamweight to me. Is that a case where you do the, like, look, we just signed this really talented fighter. She's going down to Invicta. Check her out on this next show. Sort of the way that they did with Alexa Grosso, who has now been built up into something bigger than she would have been, probably in the UFC if she got hustled into some tougher fights, to where now you can bring her over into the UFC and she's established a little bit. What are your thoughts on the fight and the division and just the whole course of things for the UFC and the women's ranks going forward? 
Yeah, uh, to answer the you know the, the first question about the 125 pound division that keeps seems to keep coming up uh, now time and time again and more and more and uh, for good reason in in a fight like this where you know Evan Smith fought Macedo um, there there was like you said you know the physical disparity was very evident um, uh, I think that Ashley Evan Smith was definitely the much bigger. Uh, fighter and physically she seemed stronger and I think that certainly helped her a lot in the fight um so as far as 125 pound division you know I definitely think it it for a lot of the women kind of in you know that that kind of weird range between 115 and 135 it is a good spot at the same time I do worry that you know um sort of three having three women's uh divisions in the UFC will you know make the talent a little bit thinner for the beginning part but this is how divisions start as well you know you don't get the you know all-star talent at first when you start a division that's just the the nature of the beast i mean every lighter weight division that we've seen when it first started out you know they they were good divisions obviously with a lot of good fighters but they've gotten much better over time as as the pool has gotten deeper so i think that uh, the similar thing would kind of happen with a 125 pound division is you'd get probably a little bit of thinner talent at the beginning but you know then you could move and and build with some invicta fighters and really make it a a well-rounded division so that would be, you know, that would be an interesting move by the UFC, and I think there'd be a lot of women that'd be interested in going into that division. As you know, as we mentioned before, uh, in kind of that between between one fifteen and one thirty five, um, you know, as, as far as you know, uh, Veronica Macedo and how she, you know, performed in that fight and and was kind of brought into this fight against Ashley Evans Smith and. Maybe, you know, like you said, it would have been a better path for her to get built up a little bit in Invicta. Um, I think that, you know, that would have been a, a good move definitely by, by Zufa, or not Zufa anymore, I should say, by the UFC um, to kind of, you know, work with Invicta and maybe, you know, get her get her a couple fights to, you know, have her get that feel of, of a bigger fighter as well. Um, I do think that, you know, actually Evan Smith, Put on a put on a pretty solid performance, but like you said, she's not a mind blowing talent either. So it it was one of those fights where I just felt that I kind of had that same takeaway as you, where I just looked at it and I looked at the differences between them physically, and I really thought, you know, I don't I don't feel that this fight should be really happening at a hundred at a hundred thirty five pounds. It just didn't make a lot of sense to me in the long haul. So whether that 125 pound division comes to fruition, I do think that it is a good alternative for, for these fighters that are kind of in between moving forward. Well, and we saw them do a, a special flyweight attraction in Ottawa um, between Joanne Calderwood and Valerie Letourneau. I got a, I was there, I got a chance to speak to both, both raved about how they felt both looked that much better on fight night. We just saw in Vancouver, Beck Rawlings, um, she released a video herself of her weight cut where she's literally crawling on the floor. That's how little energy she has. Um, I just think it makes sense as that in between. And and to what you said about you're not, you know, it kind of strips divisions down and you're not going to have a great deal of depth. 
We didn't have a great deal of depth when women's bantamweight was introduced. We didn't have a great deal of depth when flyweight was introduced, but they're slowly getting there. Yes, it takes time, but building divisions takes time. And if this is the path that is best for the athletes and the long-term viability of these divisions and these fighters, then it's just a no-brainer to me. The other part of it with the Invicta side of things, look, I was super interested in this fight because I wanted to see if Veronica Merceda was very much like this prodigious talent that was going to come in and just suddenly show that, you know, the fact that she's got five wins in four months or six months, whatever it is, isn't some fluke. I don't think it's a fluke. I think there is some talent there, but she's also very, very raw. She needs a lot more seasoning. I liken her to Angela Hill, who came off the Ultimate Fighter Season 20, rolls into the UFC. They didn't do her any favors. She got Tisha Torres and Rose Namajunas as her second and third fights in the UFC, and then got released. She has since gone down to Invicta and looked phenomenal in becoming their strawweight champion. And it's just about logging that time in the cage. She had one fight when she debuted in the UFC. You need some of that seasoning. And I think if that partnership is going to continue between Invicta and the UFC, and this applies to any of the promotions that are on Fight Pass to me, and I'll shoot this email to Eric Winter as a suggestion, get more active in promoting some of these talents that are coming into these divisions and coming into these organizations as, look, we just signed this 20-year-old that has gone out and won five fights in six months. She's a black belt in Taekwondo, a brown belt in two other disciplines. She's not bad on the eyes. Check her out at Invicta 18 and drive that interest there rather than hustling them into the cage. I understand that some of this is because it was a European event and she trains in Poland, so it makes sense to get her on a card there. But I also think in terms of the long-term sort of development of these divisions and and the women's side of things overall, it makes more sense to kind of put more of an investment in Invicta and let these fighters develop properly either on the regional circuit on the regional circuit or on in fights like Invicta where it's an all-female division, all-female organization, rather than hustling them into the UFC cage because these are where, for the most part, a lot of experienced and seasoned fighters are going to be where someone like Ashley Evans-Smith, and, and we haven't given her enough credit, she went out and did exactly what she needed to do, um, ate a very nasty spinning kick early that made her make the the, that didn't hurt face, uh, that made the, made the rounds as a gif and, and rightfully so, but then came out and just, look, I can out wrestle this girl. I can out muscle this girl. I can put her on the ground and smash her in the face with elbows. My least favorite referee in the world, Neil Hall, let it go on for far too long as per usual. Um, <laughs> but it was a good performance, but I think long term, the move to introducing 25, I also think they need to introduce 45 so that Cyborg doesn't have to cut to 140, which is just stupid. But we'll talk about that in the future once I get back from my vacation. We'll recap her fight and talk about that. Um, but I just think there's so much potential for them in the women's division. I think the interest is there. I think the talent is coming. I think five years from now, the women's division are going to be where the lightweight and welterweight and featherweight divisions are now where there's just this abundance of talent and very good fighters that you can build around. So get in on the ground floor 
But that's my two cents. It's Keyboard Kumar Podcast, Province Sports Radio, E. Spencer Kite, Patrick Shivik-Linsky, wrapping things up from the UFC Fight Night event in Hamburg, Germany. Anybody else that stood out to you? Anything else that really made you kind of sit up and take notice? Or was this just one of those fight cards that, you know, no huge takeaways. We'll just see what happens with the guys that are moving forward with victories next time out. Well, I think that, you know, we we touched on this guy a little bit, and I would be definitely remiss if I didn't, you know, talk a little bit more about what Ryan Bader did to Lear Latifi. Um, you know, that was making the rounds as a as a must-see highlight on, on social media and on TV. Um, when did Ryan Bader become a world-class kickboxer? That's what I want to know. I mean, it, it was... Did he, though? <laughs> did he... <laughs> Did he but, maybe try to throw a kick and happen to place his knee on the side of Alir Latifi's head? Well, you know, whatever. It was a case. great finish, nonetheless. <laughs> but let's but, not make it like Ryan Bader was throwing this perfectly timed knee. He was trying to kick him in the head, and Alir Latifi ducked into it. And, you know, luck is where preparation and hard work meet and all of that crap. But it's not like he was trying to knee him in the temple. Listen, let's go ask Ryan Bader. I'm sure he'll tell you that that technique. I'm sure Ryan Bader will tell you <laughs> that he was was not trying to knee him in the temple. <laughs> well, whatever the case was, it was a perfectly, you know, uh, placed knee. If not, you know, if he got a little bit lucky. But the thing that I took away from that fight overall, I mean, uh, Alir Latifi obviously came out, you know, um, and looked pretty good in, in the early goings of that fight. He... Uh, he was throwing some power shots that were taking Ryan Bader back a little bit. Um, and I do think that Ryan Bader's striking has improved quite significantly um, from what we've seen from Ryan Bader's striking in the past. I mean, that's not saying a whole lot, but I think that what we're seeing now with Ryan Bader is um, a guy who's understanding finally that he can't just rely on his wrestling, which is which we can agree on is world-class, I would say. Um, you know, I, I think we're seeing a guy who's starting to feel a little more confident in his, in his striking as well. And uh, that came through in that fight against Latifi, definitely. He was throwing some good combinations even before he landed that knee. And I thought that, you know, he while, you know, he's certainly not going to be the guy who's hanging with the very best strikers in that division – um, if he can combine that, you know, at least pretty good striking or, or very good striking with his takedown ability, I think that, you know, moving forward, he, he could certainly uh, surprise some people. And uh, I think that with the way that, you know, he knocked Elir Latifi out, it certainly, you know, surprised a lot of people as, uh, you know, as we mentioned, whether it was, you know, just kind of well-placed because of luck. That doesn't really matter. What we saw in the end was Alir Latifi out cold. Um, and I think that in the end, you know, what what I took away is just Ryan Bader feeling more confident. I should say probably the, the biggest factor in his striking that I've seen the difference is definitely the confidence. Not necessarily uh, a huge skill change, which, you know, I do see a bit of a skill, you know, update, but... I think that the biggest thing is he's comfortable, he's confident, and when he throws punches, he doesn't feel necessarily that he has to go rush in there for a takedown right away. Um, I think that he's he's just getting that 
rhythm and, and feeling just more comfortable in there when he's throwing punches and kicks. Jokes aside, it was a nasty finish as friend of the podcast and commentator John Gooden called yesterday. Definitely shut off the main switch to Alir Latifi's power supply and sent him crashing to the ground. I think for me, this fight going in was about seeing if Ryan Bader was still able to maintain that place as as we talked about kind of the Michael Bisping of the division. I think he did. I think it will be interesting, as you said, to see if this produces something else going forward. If he gets into those fights, I mean, not necessarily with Anthony Johnson, because that dude punches you in the face and, and it's just over, as Ryan Bader found out when he fought him, and as everybody outside of Daniel Cormier that has fought him has found out recently. It was a good performance. I think Ryan Bader is very much entrenched as that guy in the middle of the division. I think there is potential for him to get going forward. I do agree with you that he does seem more confident in his striking. He is working to put it together better with Chaz Turner. Um, I just don't, you know, and, and listen, yeah, it was kind of a weird, fluky confluence of movements that produced that finish, but he got the finish nonetheless. And, and as CM Punk told us on the conference call last week, luck is for losers. So <laughs> for me to call it lucky is just stupid. But we'll get out of here for now. It is a beautiful Sunday morning. Patrick has brunch plans. I have interviews and dog walks and stuff to do and hang out with my wife before she goes back to work this week. We will be back later in the week to talk about UFC 203, mentioning CM Punk. He makes his debut on the weekend. Stipe Miocic also defends the heavyweight title at home. So check for that later in the week. As for now, check him out on Twitter at Pat. Schwicklinski, C-W-I-K-L-I-N-S-K-I. I I butchered your last name there. I'm very sorry. (laughs) Yeah, you did good. You did good. (laughs) I I spelt it correctly. That's all that matters. (laughs) As for me, you know where to find me, at Spencer Kite on Twitter and Instagram. Hope you enjoyed the fights on Saturday. I hope you're looking forward to the fights on this coming Saturday. Most importantly, as always, be good to one another. You've been listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Read the Keyboard Kimura blog on theprovince.com, follow them on Twitter at Keyboard Kimura, or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kimura. Kimura.